Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Your spotlight for June 13th, 2023. Where's the year gone? I say that all the time. Uh, solid week of books. Nothing blew me away, but nothing was terrible. So, yeah, we'll, we'll break them all down. What do you think, Rock? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I was, uh, yeah, yeah I've, I just finished reading all of them. I haven't really like, uh, processed all of them in my mind yet. Uh, I'll do that as we, as we go through it. Uh, there's, uh, I'm, I'm still feeling generally happy with DC moving forward. There's a couple of things. There's one, at least one comic that I'm, uh, pulling, I'm taking, removing from my pull list. And there's another one that's going in the wrong direction. Uh, but, uh, the most of them I'm, Sort of, uh, I'm I'm still pleasantly surprised with. I'm still uh, the the dawn of the DCU is better than uh, Future State. It's better. It's better than what came before, and I think DC is slowly, gradually uh, moving in the right direction. Uh, there's still some hiccups, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk about it. My guess on what you're pulling from your your list is. Wildcats. I, I think you're dropping Wildcats. You're you're absolutely right. I am. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, yeah. yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk about it when we get there. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to jump ahead. So, but we'll kick it off. Uh, Joke or Joker? It's Joker Incorporated. Is the name of the story. Batman Incorporated is a series. Issue number nine. Writers Ed Brisson, John Timms does the art. Rex Locus on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. I want to start out. So. This was the first book that I read. It just so happened to be listed, you know, as first when we got the books and, you know, in the, the press preview. And I, I read it like last week, I think like last Thursday or something, well before it's hitting stands. Um, and as soon as I finished reading, I messaged Rocky and I said, man, the next issue of Batman Incorporated, it's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, and I love it. So... I'll, and I'll talk about what Brisson is doing that is just like, holy crap, in a second. But before I, I talk about the story itself, I want to give a shout out to John Timms, the artist. I think both yourself and myself and Trevor from Dark Knight Nation that used to do uh, reviews uh, before he became a creator, um, we all sort of had the same feeling about John Timms' art. Now, now Timms, he really got his first sort of semi-regular gig at DC doing Harley Quinn with Jimmy and Amanda when Chad Harden needed a break. But the first time I really experienced his art was on um, the Superman book. I think it was called Superman Man of Tomorrow. It was a future state book Thank you. that, you know, was far in the future. And it was the one that starred John Kent rather than. Kim I think Bell. that was Man of Metropolis, wasn't it? Superman of Metropolis yeah, yeah. or something. You're right. Yep. That's exactly what it was called. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. And, and we all felt the same way about Tim's art. And maybe it was because he'd come off Harley Quinn where everything's zany and going 100 miles an hour. And it, the art just felt busy and not busy in a way that complemented the story, but just sort of busy and the design and the layouts and everything. It felt more crowded than it needed to be. It wasn't in service to the story. Uh, I got to give all credit to John Timms. The art he's giving us here is so good. It's so spectacular. It's so dynamic. It's quiet when it needs to be. It's kinetic when it needs to be. And the line works exceptional. It, it just feels really dynamic. At the end of the day, this is a globe-trotting, action-packed book, right? Like we have all these different characters, uh, sometimes too many characters, as Rocky and I have talked about. Um, and they're jumping all over the globe. They're led by Ghostmaker. They're endorsed by Batman. 
so there's a lot. There's a lot happening, a lot of action, every issue. And Tim's art is really showcasing that really, really well. So Sham, uh, the colors are fantastic as well. So I, I'm, I'm really enjoying the art on this book. It's been, um, it's been a real highlight of the title, like from the, from the first issue. So uh, I want to give credit where credit is due because it, it's just fantastic. And, and like I said, the colors by Rex Locus are, are outstanding as well. But then as far as the issue goes, yeah, this Joker incorporated idea, Joker taking a hint from Batman saying, uh, okay, well, if Batman can have Batman all over the world, then I want Jokers all over the world too, right? Like a Batman needs a Joker. That, that's what the Joker thinks. Um, but of course, it's not enough to just, hey, I'm the Joker and I'm going to have these sort of lookalikes or followers or what have you. Uh, and unbeknownst even to the people that are like, yeah, I'll, I'll become a Joker. Oh, my green screen just dropped. I'll fix that in a second. Uh, but anyway, he, he's he's booby-trapped these other guys. He's booby-trapped these jokers, they don't even know it. They've got, you know, a bomb in their heads, you know, almost suicide squad, like where the Joker with the f press of a button or flick of a switch can have them exude Joker toxin, Joker gas. And everybody within, I can't remember how, how much they say within a mile or 600 feet or something like that is, is infected. They can all be killed by Joker. Uh, and so the, oh, and, and the Joker has made it where they can't be, if they're captured or these members of Batman Incorporated do anything other than just kill them outright, like if they try to stop them or delay or anything like that, the Joker toxin, the Joker venom will be released. So basically what the Joker is doing, he's playing mind games with Ghostmaker. He's making it where Ghostmaker's made this promise to Batman that he won't kill. And the Joker is trying to test that. And so toward the end of the issue, when one of these Joker followers is captured or is confronted by a couple of members of Batman Incorporated. Ghostmaker calls him. is like, you can't save him. You can't try to detain him. You can't handcuff him and try to figure things out. You got to kill him. You got to kill him. You know, and again, it's, it's, it's an age old philosophical question. You know, uh, I think the, the traditional problem that people are given is, you know, if there's a, like a trolley filled with people and then there's somebody like tied to the tracks, um, you could either let the trolley just roll over the person and kill the person that's tied to the tracks, or you could shift the trolley to make it go on a different track, but then like all the people on the trolley would die, like crack, it would derail or something like that. So what do you choose, right? The life of one, the life of many. A lot of people say, well, you choose, you know, whatever the, the, the is going to give the most benefit, the most people are going to live. And, and these are villains. These are scumbags. Um, but there is that heroic ideal that you could almost say arrogant at times to say, no, we can save everybody. So that's the dilemma. Ghostmaker's got to make the call. And it may be that he'll make the call and the members of Batman Incorporated might not agree. They're, you know, they're all different with their own personalities, their own philosophical outlooks. So it's really, really interesting what, what Ed Brisson is doing. And I'm, I'm really digging it. So I can't wait to see where this goes. What what are your thoughts on it, Rock? Enjoyed it as much as I did. I, I I did I did. It was I do think there's a lot of moving parts, but there's enough excitement going on here that uh, I I've I remained sort of intrigued by the narrative because the reality is the, what the Joker has done. He's really captured. 
he's he's really showed up at the worst possible moment for Batman Incorporated, and because this is the Joker is basically he's ultimate he's given the ultimate test to go to uh, Batman Incorporated to Ghostmaker saying look. Um, all my Jokers, I don't care if they live or die, but the only way out is that you have to kill the Jokers. You either kill my Jokers, and that'll be all good, but if you try to save their life and save the people around them, everyone dies. So just kill the Jokers. Just, In other words, the Joker is saying, you think you're like Batman? Batman will figure would figure out a way not to, to win the day and not kill. But Ghostmaker, you're incompetent. Batman Incorporated's incompetent. Batman might think he's got Batman Incorporated, but this Batman Incorporated, nah, 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 nah. It might be called Batman Incorporated, but you guys, you're no Batman. You're no Batman. And there's only one Joker. And 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 symbolically, the Joker doesn't care about his teammates, other members of Joker Incorporated. There's only one Joker. And I love the fact that Ed Brisson understands that. The Joker doesn't give a rat's ass about the other members of his team. It's Team Joker. No, there's only one Joker. <laughs> Let's be blunt. And uh, the Joker doesn't tolerate imitations. And he sure as hell isn't going to tolerate imitations in the form of Batman Incorporated. And I hasten to add something very, very important here that I think maybe we might be missing as readers and that is this comic book is called Batman Incorporated it's not called Ghostmaker so what I love about this is at the end at the end of this issue there is a battle Ghostmaker tells all the members of Batman Incorporated to kill the Joker uh, the Joker teammate that you happen to be fighting and he tells Dark Ranger and Wingman to kill Corvus Call at the end to kill Corvus Call and and Dark Ranger tries to prevent Wingman from killing Corvus Call on the instructions with the instructions of Ghostmaker. Ghostmaker tells tells uh, Dark Ranger and Wingman to kill Corvus Call, and um, of course uh, Dark Ranger tries to prevent Wingman from killing Corvus Call, and in the process, uh, Dark Ranger in preventing Wingman from giving a killing blow to Corvus ends up getting stabbed by Corvus uh, himself, which is very interesting because where I I see here, what I see here is Ghostmaker has already failed Batman Incorporated. He's failed his, his instructions from Batman. He's given up. He's given up on the code against killing because he doesn't know what to do. Batman wouldn't. But Ghostmaker has failed. And what's interesting here is Dark Ranger has not. Now, while at least one member, Wingman, has been stabbed... Dark Ranger was at least willing to, to, to still not kill, not deviate from the code against killing. I'm wondering if what Ed Brisson as the writer is going to do here is, is at the end of this day, who's to say Ghostmaker is going to remain the leader of Batman Incorporated? That's what I like about this. I'm beginning to question whether Ghostmaker is going to win the day. Maybe it's going to be another member of Batman Incorporated that steps up and wins the day and finds a way to win the day without killing. And it's not going to be Ghostmaker. It's going to be maybe Dark Ranger. It's going to be someone else. How's that for misdirection? Because I emphasize again, Ghostmaker is just the leader of this team. Who's to say I can't have another another leader? And uh, now, even if I'm wrong about that, it doesn't matter because I love this story. I love how Ghostmaker's being tested. I love how all the members of Ghost of uh, Batman Incorporated are being tested. I love Grey Wolf. I love the Knight. I love uh, uh, Dark Ranger Wingman. I like how they're all different characters in their own right. I love the different iterations of the characters. I like the way that they're being challenged, and it makes me. I th- I'm sure Ghostmaker right now is a appreciating just how difficult Batman has it upholding that code against killing and how easily convenient it is to just 
kill kill your enemy uh when it's the easiest and i think that's the joke that's the what the joker is trying to say to batman incorporated in particular ghostmaker so i don't know how ed brison's going to wrap this up i don't know how many members of batman incorporated are going to survive lord knows there's enough characters here he could probably kill a few off and we're not going to blink an eye but i like where this is going full props to him i had quick comment on your art on john tim's i i John Tim's art has grown on me. I frankly wasn't a fan of it when his drawing renderings of Super uh, of John Kent. I wasn't a big fan of it to be honest. I thought just just the rendering of it. Uh, I thought his backgrounds were 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 not particularly great. But he has improved dramatically. The backgrounds here. John Tim's is drawing. I mean, they're all over the world. They're from Melbourne, Australia, to Lampeter, Wales, to God Gotham. They're all over the place. Different settings. It feels like we're reading a James Bond movie. And the backgrounds here. You get a feeling that this does feel like a world setting. Thanks uh, in totally to John Tim's amazing art and his ability to distinguish the members of Batman Incorporated. I mean, let's be blunt here. My frustration in identifying the various members of Batman Incorporated, that's on me. It's not the fault of uh, the artist John Tim's. So overall, I'm impressed. Yeah, one thing I'll mention about you, you started off by saying there's only one Joker. Joker doesn't care about well, anybody but Joker. Yeah. I kind of go back to what Killer Croc was saying last Last week, when we were talking about the uh, man who stopped laughing, that was mm-hmm. kind of the point, you know, um, that that version of the uh, of the Joker, or what have you, saying, you know, why, why does nobody like me, or this and that, which which kind of points to that injured version of the Joker not being the the actual <laughs> real Joker. So, I guess we'll see. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. Up next, we have Wildcats issue number eight. Bigger Cages, Longer Chains, written by Matthew Rosenberg. Danny Kim and Michelle Bandini are the artists. Elmer Santos on colors, Farron Delgado on letters. So, yeah, I correctly guess this is the one you're dropping. Give us your thoughts. Um, sorry, I'm having frustrations with my mouse. Um, well, you know, I've... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, while I said I'm dropping this, this title, I, it's not that it doesn't have some potential here it's just i just find that it's it's jumping around too much and i think that a mistake that maybe uh that matthew rosenberg has made is that i think he's assumed a little bit too much uh from the reader or at least from this reader this is obviously just my opinion i generally really liked what uh, matthew rosenberg did in that initial six issue grifter run in, in the first six issues of batman urban legends and i was really looking forward to wildcats this just feels like it's it's it just feels like it's going into two. It just feels directionless. Uh, we've got we, we've got multiple. We, we've got espionage chaos here. I'm not sure who the bad guy is. I'm not sure if it's uh, is it uh, is it Halliday? Is it Marlowe? Is it Amanda Waller? Who's doing what? Uh, I'm not really sure, and I'm not really sure it really matters or if we're even supposed to care. Uh, it, we finally, we're, at, we're, we're by the end, we're on the, this is the eighth issue. Uh, we know that the Court of Owls was involved. They were teased at the end of issue one, I believe. Uh, and now here at the end of issue eight, it's now revealed that Halliday is a member of the Court of Owls. Uh, in the middle of this issue, John Lynch shows up. Uh, we've got, uh, we've got Voodoo Lady, uh, Lady Tron Zealot, uh, Cedric, Michael Cray, uh, basically in our world, in our universe, trying to navigate, um, seemingly on the side of Marlowe, 
uh, trying to navigate a betrayal of Marlowe orchestrated by Halliday, who's utilizing other members of Wildcats against them. This has been going on since issue, since issue one in different capacities. Meanwhile, Grifter, who was supposedly killed but not killed, uh, ends up, his body was replaced by another body in another part of the universe. He's in another Earth, and in the other Earth, he's he's tasked, he's teamed up with alternate versions of the Raven, Damien, and uh, 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 a whole slew of... Uh, uh, a whole slew of others, including his brother Max, who is dead in our in our universe, but is alive in this other universe. And I'm not sure what the point is. I'm not sure what the point is. Why is it's in a completely divorced storyline, completely unrelated to the main narrative? It's and if I didn't know better, I think it was just to have Griff to be able to fight a different version of Mr. Freeze and to be able to kill Deathstroke. And so uh, I have to admit there was some satisfaction watching Zealot, another universe's Zealot, uh, slit the throat of Damian Wayne, who was still his annoying self in the other in the other universe when he was in that more annoying stage that he got over during Williamson's uh, Robinson run, or Robin run. In any event, um, it, this feels that, this feels like Rosenberg is just, He's clearly having fun playing in the sandbox, and he's got sandboxes in different universes, and that's all well and good. I just don't feel that this is really going anywhere. This that I don't feel this is really a cohesive story as it could be, because I actually find myself openly wondering here, what is where is this going? And I'm not really sure why I'm supposed to care. I, uh, I th- this feels like it has too many moving parts, and and even maybe too many players i'm not really sure where this is going but it uh i'm i'm more frustrated than anything else and i'm also a little bit frustrated that and this isn't i'm this is a very matthew rosenberg story but i find that he he he's really played hard on the sarcasm i actually i'm a fan of matthew rosenberg's humor i generally find a lot of his dialogue funny now, some people don't, but I do. So it's not so much that. I just, I've reached a point where a lot of the dialogue and the, the tropes and the patterns of dialogue and the characters, it seems to be repetitive after a while. And I'm not, I'm still not sure where this story is going or, or really what's at stake and why exactly should I care? We're, again, we're eight issues in and I still don't know what the, what, what, what do the Court of Owls want to do? They want to take over Halo Corporation, I think. Which maybe is kind of interesting, but we shouldn't have had to wait issues. Eight, have to wait eight issues for that hand to be played. Uh, it just it just was done in too much of, in my view, it it just wasn't well paced, well structured, and it, it it's some somewhere along the line it lost me. Despite the fact that there's some really cool scenes here, but they took place in another universe that has nothing to do with the story. And with the main story. So I'm a little bit lost. So I can sit there and tell you what I really liked about this issue. It had some cool moments, but cool moments that really didn't have anything to do with our universe. And so I'm just, this is, it just feels unfocused. And I, I hate to say it, but I, I, have, I have to, I have to opt out. I'll still review this, but it's, it's, it's not rewarding me and it's, it's too slow a tale. It's, it's got to reward the reader with something of substance. And so far, it's been devoid of the type of substance that I want to see in, a, in an espionage, these types of stories. So, what do you think? Oh, you're on mute. Sure am. Uh, I actually thought, I, I mean, I hate to say it was an improvement because I don't think the, the title has been bad at all. Um, 
But I, I guess what I'll say is the narrative you mentioned this other universe feels like the story that's going on there feels completely removed from what's going on in the in the main universe. And you're you're right. But it feels like this is the first issue where I feel like they're starting to turn toward each other to where that narrative those two narratives will come together. Obviously, we know the grifter that's in the other universe uh, is the grifter from our universe, and and there, it's, he's the the grifter that his teammates are looking for. So eventually it's going to come together and I have a feeling it's going to be really satisfying when it does. Now, that being said, I can't say that there are no, no issues, um, no pun intended with, with the story and with the plotting and the pacing, as you mentioned. So I, I talked about this book early on being like, if you're looking for some fast paced sort of popcorn action book without any, sort of politics, this is not the book for you. This book is all about politics. It's all about betrayal and machinations and, you know, oblique sort of espionage type stories. And it will pay off. I have full confidence it will pay off eventually. But I could completely understand people that, you know, get tired of waiting because Wildcats, that title, you know, obviously started by Jim Lee way back in the day at Image, it sort of evokes a certain kind of fun – uh, summer blockbuster type feel, right? Where you can kind of turn your brain off and just read it and you, you get great art and a lot of cool moments, like you said, but the overall story is not really, doesn't have that much depth. This is sort of the other side of the coin of that. This is all about depth. This is all about things, seven issues previous, finally paying off. And that's what's going to happen. If there's any mistake Matthew Rosenberg has made, and again, this I'll take the blame for it, I don't have like this huge overarching knowledge of Wildstorm, of Wildcats, the Wildstorm universe, you know, Authority and Stormwatch and all that. I just don't. I haven't read enough of that stuff comprehensively to to really understand. I think obviously Matthew Rosenberg has and he loves this stuff. So anybody who's who's was really invested in that interconnected Wildstorm universe back in the day they're probably getting way more out of this than I am because yeah, John Lynch shows up and I, I sort of know who he is, but not really, you know, I, I don't have enough context with the Damonites and with Marlowe and with these characters overall to really understand and, and see what Rosenberg is hinting at and the Easter eggs he's dropping and that sort of thing. So you can take it one of two ways. You can say, well, that's a mistake, right? Like if this is supposed to be new reader friendly or supposed to, really pull the Wildcats into the regular DC universe, it's not really doing that exceptionally well. Um, and it, it may be that in the end, it, do, it, it does all make sense and it is cohesive and it, it ends up as a win. But right now it's not there yet. But what I will say about this issue in particular, this is the first time since early on where I've read an issue of Wildcats and I thought, you know what? I want to go back and reread the previous issues. Like I didn't have time. But this issue number nine made me want to go back or issue number eight made me want to go back and read the first seven issues. So all at once, you know, kind of in one sitting so I could have more context. What am I missing? What have I forgotten? That sort of thing. There's a lot of potential. It hasn't paid off yet, but I think it's I think it's getting better. I think it's getting closer to a resolution now, whether or not it it does pay off, whether or not I have enough knowledge of the Wildstorm universe for it to work, you know, that, that remains to be seen, but I, I did enjoy it. And I thought the Dan, Danny Kim and Michelle Banditi art were great. 
And maybe it was what you said. Maybe it was just the fact that we're still continuing on. I do feel like the storylines are coming together. But on top of all that, we did have the cool moments. We did see Damien, you know, get killed, kind of a cathartic thing when he was in that annoying stage, like you mentioned. We did see Deathstroke defeated, you know, something that can't happen in the regular universe. We did see Captain Cold's cold gun explode and him shatter into, you know, a thousand pieces. Th- those are cool. Those are cool moments. And again, I think, you know, I'm a fan of spy stuff and espionage stuff and, and that sort of thing. And I, I think that's what type of story this is. I just wish I had a better understanding of people's motivations, who's betraying who and why. Um, and again, I don't know if it's my lack of context with the Wildstorm universe or if Rosenberg just hasn't laid it all out for us yet. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, but overall, I, I feel like this this title still still has my attention. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Spirit World number two. This is from writer Alyssa Wong. Henning is the artist. Sebastian Chang on colors. Janice Chang on letters. Um, this this is a limited series. We know there's only six issues, so I I'm gonna. See, that's the reason that we had a bit of a time jump between the end of last issue and the beginning of this issue. We know that um, Xanthi Zhao is trapped in the real world. She is somebody unique. She's this new character in DC, this Asian character who's sort of not dead, but sort of not alive. She's kind of in the middle. She can travel back and forth in the spirit world. Um, She was killed as a very young child. She runs in at the end of the last issue. She runs into her mother on the street. Her mother's first of all, if she was killed so long ago, I mean, I guess a mother would recognize. Like, I don't know if I would recognize my kid. You know, eighteen years later, there's a lot of changes that happen physically between like a you know four or five year old and a eighteen year old. Um, but she recognizes her, and then this this issue starts off, and they're they're at the home of her parents. Um, eating dinner. And it's like, how do you get from point A to point B? It lacked that context. And I feel, I felt like I needed that. I needed that context. Um, but it is interesting because to my point of, Hey, you're not the same person. Her mother, clearly there's things going on that we don't understand because her mother seems to have some, um, some magical ability as well. When, um, Xanthi goes to leave saying, this is not where I belong. Her mother tries to stop her by using her name, and that's a thing in magic, right? Like if you you have power over something, if you know its name, she knows who John Constantine is, even though she pretends not to. So her binding spell that specifically names John Constantine works. Her binding spell that names Xanthi doesn't, because Xanthi's not that person anymore, not how the mother perceived her or them to be. She's not <laughs> I did it again. They are non-binary. So you know, and the mother had a certain perception of what Xanthi was. They're no longer that. The binding spell didn't work. So that was interesting. But again, there was some context missing there. Um, and again, I, I won't blame Alyssa Wong. I'm sure it was a matter of, of you know, real estate happening. But it is interesting and it brings in some some stakes for Xanthi in terms of um, emotionality and, and obviously her trauma that she's still trying to deal with. So that was interesting as well. And then uh, Xanthi's sister that she never really met um, actually gave her this uh, origami wreath of flowers. We know one of Xanthi's abilities is the ability to manifest things from paper, you know, from origami. Um, because in the spirit world that she travels to, the way 
people that inhabit that spirit world get things is by somebody offering a paper sacrifice. You know, you make whatever out of paper, you burn it at their gravesite, what have you, and it manifests in the spirit world for them. So uh, that wreath, that origami wreath, actually allows Xanthi and John Constantine to finally get back to the spirit world, uh, or at least try, attempt to. And when during the attempt, um, when they're traveling in between the spaces, between the spirit world and our world, something follows them to the spirit world, and, and that's where the issue ends. Um, so interesting. I, I'm really starting to like Xanthi as a character. That being said, we're, we've only scratched the surface yet. I think we need a little bit more in terms of what their personality is, where they're coming from, that sort of thing. Um, Constantine hasn't really felt like he's had a, a role yet in the series. He sort of just feels like window dressing at this point. Um, but with uh, Cass Kane version of Batgirl, Trapped in the Spirit World, there's some more stakes going on there as well. So really curious now that Xanthi's back in the Spirit World to have her and Constantine meet up with Cassandra Kane and find out really what's going on. Who, who's the, we don't even know who the big bad is. Like you know, there's a disconnect still. We've only seen hints of who the actual antagonist of the series is. Um, so again, although it feels like at times there's some context missing, it may just be that Alyssa Wong has the, the story she's telling just may be a little bit too big for six issues. So we're losing some important bits of information here or there, but that's remains to be seen. We'll see how it all plays out in the end. Um, but the art by Henning is is fantastic. Color works great. So visually, it's a very pleasing comic for sure. Um, what were your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, I'm I was a little bit confused by this uh, issue, but uh, uh, I, I'm I'm actually I got some questions that I think the answers might be interesting because I, I really don't know what Alyssa Wong was trying to convey. But it might have been something dare I say profound, but I maybe uh, I'm missing it but maybe I can correctly guess it. For the life of me, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me that her mother's binding spell would work on John Constantine, somebody she does not, in fact, know. I mean, she doesn't know John Constantine. She might have heard of him, but she doesn't know him. But it works on him, but it doesn't work on her own daughter because that, because, and, and I don't understand when she refers to her daughter's name why that the letterer made this, the name all scribbly. Well, she she knows her daughter's name. What what is that referring to? Does, is 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 Alyssa Wong is is they he he she, is they trying to convey the idea that because she's non-binary, she's no longer referenced by her birth name anymore, and so her mother misidentifies her in the magic spell. Is that what Alyssa Wong is trying to say? Because otherwise. Yeah, I think that's exactly what they're trying to say. Okay, uh, because if – all right. Was, yeah, the, the, they are not that that person that their mother is identifying them. You right. know, when you refer to somebody who's transitioned by their old name, it's called dead naming them. That name is dead, so very meta. Okay, okay. well – yeah. death. Well, I'll, I'll be straight up. I think that's a really dumb plot point, really dumb. I will also say that I am really dumb as a reader because you just educated me straight up. I got no idea that trans people or non-binary people refer to their, their birth name as dead names. First of all, what a horrible thing to do. But whatever. If, if, if Explain that to me. Explain the logic of that to me. I don't understand that. I don't explain that logic. And why should I fault a parent for having the audacity to actually call Xanthi by their 
birth name when Xanthi at the beginning of this issue is shown to be almost an infant, two or three or three or four years old being hit by a car. Surely she, her identity wasn't known at that young age if she was non-binary. So why are you faulting a parent for, for, for being, for weeping and, and so desperate to have you back in their life? It just seems cruel. And I don't, I don't think that was Alyssa Wong's intention, but what, what, what I, what I'm frustrated here is there was an opportunity here to educate me as a reader, which I can appreciate that you just helped, helped me along. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I think this was a missed opportunity here because of a lack of clarity in the writing, because I, I was taken aback by the scribbliness of the name. I didn't get that. I, I, I guess I guessed right, but I, I think that there was a really missed opportunity here. It also, I have to assume that Exanth, that Exanthe character is upset with her parents because her daughter refers to his long, you know, his daughter. And I guess, I guess that's, are we to assume that her parents didn't like her chosen identity or her, there was some issue to do with her non-binariness or trans, if she's a trans man or a trans woman. And again, I apologize. They, there, I'm, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in, I'm trying hard to say the right pronoun here because John Constantine refers to Xanthi as they and them. And I want to do the same thing in the spirit of recognizing the, the pronoun. I just, I found it, um, th- this is a comic that made me feel that I needed to know more and I'd get more educated. And uh, frankly, these are the types of comics that ha- you have an opportunity to educate readers like myself Uh and uh, I think it was a missed opportunity. And ultimately, uh, I think this this comic could have been more clear in that regard. I, I would have appreciated more clarity. But maybe that's just me. Clearly, you didn't have 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 that issue with it. But I felt a little bit. Uh, I felt a little bit. It was a little bit lost on me in terms of the struggle that Xanthi, that clearly they is having, and uh, Constantine seemed to intuitively know what she was, what they were going through. Uh, and yet I'm not sure why he would, because it's not like he can relate, but he seems to know that she, what her chosen pronoun is. Um, and, but it's never really spelled out for, for the readers, except in advertisements. That's supposed to be in the story. If you're not putting it in the story, it's because you're backing down and you're being a coward. Uh, the purpose of this should be to educate the readers. I don't feel like I know Xanthi. I don't really, uh, it's not really spelled out. It's, it's vague and it's a missed opportunity. Uh, I'm going to cut Alyssa Wong a lot of slack because this is a sensitive topic. And I think this is a topic that can ruffle some feathers, but I am interested in this character, but it, I have to admit to that. I think a miss, there was a missed opportunity here in, in the manner in which this story was told, but I don't know. That's, that's what I think. John, John Constantine is bisexual, so you know I, I don't. Of course, he understands. You know he he's going to relate to Xanthi better than I can. You know as a straight guy, straight white guy. Um, so that's first. Se- second of all, it goes to what I was saying. There may just not be enough room. And yeah, I'll cut Alyssa along a lot of slack too because not only is it a sensitive subject, uh, and I don't think she's being cowardly at all. It it goes back to maybe there's just not enough space. And you run the risk, right? Like if you sort of break it all down and spood feed those of us that maybe need some education on pronouns and dead naming and that sort of thing, then then you run the risk of feeling like you're being like really condescending to a certain subject of the, uh, you know, certain segment of the audience, another segment of the audience who this may be speaking to 
on a much more personal level who, you know, who are part of the LGBTQ community are going to be like, why are you wasting time spelling this out? You know, so it's a very tough position to be in and a very tough line to walk. Um, I get, I'll give Alyssa, like I said, a lot of credit, cut her some slack. Um, cut them some slack. I know what their pronouns are. Um, so, and, and we don't know what editorial is saying. And so, it, yeah, it's really tough. Uh, at least they are, you know, if they're doing an advertising, at least they're doing it, right? Yeah. I completely agree with you. Maybe it should be a little more clear in the book. But again, it's like, how do you, how do you put it in the book? And there's no way this book's going to please everybody, right? You can't please all the people all the time. So I got to think, like I said, it's, a, it's an issue of space. But I totally agree with you that this is an opportunity. It's a DC comic. There are DC fans out there that are reading this maybe for no other reason that then it's a DC book or it's a DC magic. And they don't have any idea about dead naming or the LGBT community and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, there are some, some missed opportunities, but as far as the family stuff, again, I go back, it's gotta be just in terms of space. The first issue started with a little narrative about a little girl a very similar scene, almost gets hit by a car. Xanthi uh, pulls her up from getting washed down a storm drain because she dodged out of the way of a car. Um, whether or not that was the moment that Xanthi died, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe Xanthi was a little older before she passed away and there was friction between her parents because uh, – or between their parents because you know they were wanting to be non-binary. Their parents pushed back. We just don't have enough information yet to know. Um, cause I take your point. Like if, if Xanthi did pass away at like four years old, first of all, I, I can't imagine they were aware of their sexual orientation at that young of an age. Maybe they were, I don't know, seems a little, like a little bit of a stretch, but yeah. How could you fault the mother for then calling them by the old name? But it, I think my point still stands that that's no longer who they are and whether or not she knows John Constantine personally or not. She knows the name John Constantine. That is the name he goes by. That is how he self-identifies. He self-identifies as John Constantine. And John Constantine Constantine is known, right, in the DC universe. Well, I'm just saying if John decided that for for this one moment, I'm going to, you know, you can't avoid a magic trick by by deciding just instantly. I just I just decided my name is Jace, not Rocky anymore to avoid a magic trick. I mean, it just seems it just there's a silliness factor to it that it just I know what I believe I know what Alyssa Wong was trying to say. She was trying to make a statement about or they were trying to make a statement about identity. I get, I get it, and I, I think it's a noble effort, and I like the the use of the lettering to show the, the scribbly na- name. I can see the the creative inspiration. I can see, I now I can see more clearly what she was trying to do, I think. But I, I really do think, I'm sure I'm not the only one that might miss that in, in the reading of this, uh, but but maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But No, I think 100%. I mean, even I, even when I first read it, I'm like, wait, why is that scribbled out? And then after I thought, you know, I had to put some effort into, into figuring it out. And again, there may be a segment of the audience that are trans um, where, you know, it, it's very intuitive for them. I don't have that life experience. So um, but anyway, it'd be interesting to have Alyssa on to, to talk about it and, yeah. and have it more clear. So I don't know. We'll see. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Green Lantern number two from our buddy Jeremy Adams as the writer, Art is by Zermanico, colors by Romulo Fardo Jr., letters by Dave Sharp. I have a specific gripe with this issue. Um, I'm going to let you go first because I'm curious to see if you're going to feel about it the way that I do. So what were your thoughts on Green Lantern number two? 
Um, I think that uh, I didn't find that a lot. Hap- I didn't find the story move forward a lot in this issue. I think that uh, this th- th- this issue is sort of a segue into Night Terrors. But what I enjoyed in this issue the most was the continued the the humor aspect of it. This was Hal Jordan having fun. And I like the fact that we sort of we you know that the issue the story itself in this in this second issue of Green Lantern by Jeremy Adams is called Nice Guys Finish First, and uh, you know it's funny Hal Jordan never struck me as it's interesting he doesn't necessarily strike me as like the nice guy he's sort of like the cocky Tom Cruise type, and uh, but he uh, this starts. This flashes back to when he first, he literally, it confirms that he willed his power ring into existence from the Manhunter armor that he had when he was battling the Manhunter in the, in the, in the first issue here. And it shows him essentially having fun with the, with his new ring that he just literally willed into existence. Uh, that, because that was not clear that he willed it into existence. I got the impression in the first issue that he had his existing Green Lantern ring, but that it was just dead and that he powered it up through the Manhunter armor, but he actually created a brand new ring from Sure, willpower, which is pretty cool, and the fact that he he fights this demolition team and he has fun with them and he he makes them think that uh, he there's a horror element. He scares them. He has fun with them. He creates some ghosts and dead people, saying "Join us in eternity." And he's just he's just having fun. He's poking fun at the bad guys, and of course they give up and they surrender. And he's just having a lot of fun, and he tests his powers. He flies up to the atmosphere, and then he ends up realizing that there are some limits, and that it might be that he's restricted to Earth, uh, and that he can't leave Earth, which is kind of interesting. That if if that is true, that I I like the fact with Green Lantern and Earth. I think many of us were sort of we're glad that Jeremy Adams has grounds held Jordan on Earth, and particularly grounding her with Carol Ferris on with uh, Ferris uh, er, with Ferris Industries because. We know that Hal Jordan last issue, he basically he did a test flight, a, te- a test simulation. He ended up getting fired by Carol Ferris. But in this issue, it's quite comical. He works his way up to finally become a pilot for a private airliner that ends up flying privately members of Ferris aircraft, including Carol Ferris herself with her fiance, Nathan. And it's really quite funny uh, how he ends up getting the job and it shows him throughout the day in, within 24 hours. He's, the, he's one of the head pilots or the co-pilot on this private jet which that flies Carol Ferris around. A lot of great dialogue and uh, Hal Jordan, he's such a nice guy, he actually manages to befriend Nathan, the fiance of Carol Ferris and Nathan even likes Hal and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't maybe appreciate the history that Carol and uh, and he doesn't realize as he, he should be worried because, you know, Hal Jordan is a, he's a pretty subtly guy and he's not only a pilot, he's Green Lantern but uh, I'm not sure if Nathan truly understands that but in any event, uh, Carol... Carol and Nathan uh, are in the plane, and Hal n- navigates his way back into the uh, f- away from the cockpit, and ends up talking to uh, uh, Carol. And then Nathan goes to the bathroom, and Hal makes sure he gets trapped in the bathroom. He locks him in the bathroom with his power ring, and and then uh, and the issue just ends with with the uh, with the jet being uh, essentially attacked by by what I'm guessing are the sleepless nights of night terrors, the the night terrors, because the night terror event begins next issue, and that'll be two issues long. And I'm guessing that these embodied sort of dark, dark ghost-like skeleton creatures are the sleepless nights 
of uh, Insomnia, who is the main villain in the Night Terrors event that will encompass most DC titles in July and August. So I enjoyed the I enjoyed the issue. Uh, I enjoyed the issue, and um, yeah, and so I'm. I, I thought it was a lot of fun, and yeah. So what do you think? So. I had mixed feelings. I, I, I agree with you. It, it feels like the main plot didn't quite move forward as much as I would have wanted. Um, it was great that we got confirmation that Hal created his own ring. That's what I assumed. It's not the first time that Hal's done it. We saw Rubber Venditti do it in his run, uh, I think maybe in the first issue of Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps and DC Rebirth. So we know Hal has that ability. Never seen another Green Lantern do that. So I do appreciate that. I'm left not pointing the finger at Jeremy, but more pointing the finger at DC editorial. Like I get that you wanted a, a Green Lantern book to be out there. I want a Green Lantern to, book to be out there, especially one that stars Hal Jordan. I feel like Jordan's my Green Lantern. But why did you start this if you're then just going to interrupt it and we're going to have three months off or two months off or whatever to do Night Terrors, which I could not possibly be less excited for – a quote unquote event than I am with night terrors. I'm not a big horror guy. Um, that being said, there's been some pretty good horror books that I've discovered. I'd say over the last five, six years, I've become more of a fan of, of horror. And I recognize it's storytelling, the storytelling ability, the kind of the unique niche that it feels fills. And I'm fine with that, but to yeah. interrupt a superhero line with a bunch of mashed up heroes and monsters yeah, I I could. I am so not looking forward to this. I am dreading it. I'm dreading it. And so, yeah. if, if it feels like it is not moving forward the plot a lot, it, probably because Jeremy Adams is like, well, I'm just getting started. I have this idea, you know, uh, for a Green Lantern book. You guys want me to do it, and then, you know, I'm writing the first issue, and I find out. Oh, by and by the way, we're going going to go on a two month hiatus. At the end of issue two, you need it to tie into this event that's going to take over the summer of DC. Like how annoying! I, I haven't talked to Jeremy about this. I have no idea. I'm not, I don't want to put any words in his mouth. This well, is purely on me. Let, let me interject. Uh, uh, Trevor and I in Calgary at the Calgary Expo, we did talk to Jeremy Adams specifically about this subject. And while I won't, I you know we. Uh, I won't say everything that, that we talked about the details, but I will say this, that Jeremy, uh, the professional that he is, he knows the assignment. He was very happy to get Green Lantern and he knew full well that he had to deal with night terrors. And I will say this, he did indicate, which I thought was uh, very interesting. He said, one of the first things that he, he openly questioned, he goes, well, night terrors, night terrors is the idea that you know, is this insomnia character creating nightmares, uh, which in many ways, at least in his mind, uh, and as we talked about with him over over uh, a great steak dinner, that you would think that somebody with great the greatest willpower in, of all the superheroes, that he, would, he wouldn't be too threatened by a night terror or a nightmare. I mean, if anybody can overcome a nightmare, you'd think it would be Hal Jordan. And all I will say to you is, Jeremy Adams agrees with us. So if you're wondering that, if you're wondering how much of a threat a nightmare is to Hal Jordan, have some faith. 
<laughs> the insomnia is going to find out probably, I'm guessing, that they never anticipated Hal Jordan. And so I'm just going to leave it like that. And I don't know how it resolves. He never said how it resolves. But all I know is that Jeremy Adams had fun with it. He went with it. He took the assignment. And he's hoping that us readers will enjoy this story. And he just, all he said to Trevor and I is just remember that Hal Jordan has a lot of willpower. And so how do you think he'd handle the suggestion that a nightmare is going to scare him? I, and and so you know that we know how Jeremy Adams powered up Wally West. We know how we redeemed Wally West. I think I can say with confidence that uh, Jeremy Adams, uh, the outcome with respect to Hal Jordan taking on insomnia and, and the sleepless nights, I think you could probably venture a guess how that might end. And I, I'm confident that we're all going to be smiling at the end of it. And I'll, and I'll leave it at that. Won't be, I guarantee I won't be smiling. The only way I'll be smiling <laughs> is if Hal Jordan's willpower extends to DC editorial and they get never hits the stands. That's right. the only And I know I'm being overly critical and I'm being overly harsh because uh, I haven't even read it yet and I shouldn't be judging it. But nobody needs this. Nobody wants this. Like how many of these type of stupid events has DC done over the past three or four years? Look at Lazarus Planet. That was a complete waste of time. Like, just we're getting a good story. The first issue of Green Lantern was great. Second issue, just when it starts to build on that momentum. Oh, and by the way, here comes this event. Here comes the last page with a bunch of purple guys flying around the sky. It's just stupid. Yeah. It's stupid. If you're going to get good writers, and Jeremy Adams is a fantastic writer, if you're going to get good writers and you're going to put your faith in them and believe in what their pitch is, then let them do their thing. Let them tell the story they want to tell. Quit interrupting it with all this bullshit. Like, yeah. it's so frustrating. So yeah. I, I, this issue for me was ultimately a disappointment because, again, it didn't feel like enough happened. And I completely blame it on why is Jeremy going to get a bunch of stuff going? He can't He can't end on a cliffhanger that deals with the Green Lantern storyline because he's got to deal with night terrors. It's so frustrating. And don't get me wrong. He's a great writer. He's a professional. He'll he'll make it make sense. He'll work it in, and it'll be fine, and it'll be an you know as enjoyable story as he can make it. But it's not necessary. It doesn't need to be there. If you believe in the pitch that he gave you, then let him tell that story. And if you want to have some crappy night terrors storyline, then just do it in its own book. Why why is this one? Why is night terrors interrupting the regular DC line? Yeah, well, that's I, my question. Yeah, well, Lazarus I, I, no, I agree with you. I I totally agree with you. I can say we can say that for every DC title that Night Terrors is interrupting. Uh, the the positive thing is that I mean it, it's gonna, it, you know, I'm I'm confident that Jeremy Adams is taking the lemon that has been handed to him and he's gonna make some lemonade. And uh, that's all we can do is have a little faith. <laughs> the positive thing about it is when I did my order for the summer months, I did my pre-orders. Man, I'm I'm not buying any DC books. Yeah. I'm like, okay, great. I'm saving money. I'm not buying any – DC burned me on Future State, right? You know that. Like I showed you the stack. It's literally yeah. three feet high. I bought almost – I didn't buy every ratio cover, but I bought every open order variant cover for Future State, and I also bought some ratios. I spent yeah. so much money on Future State investing, wanting to back up DC, wanting to put you know some faith in them. And I had a stack, I'm not kidding, three feet high of Future State books that were, gar <laughs> that were garbage. I would wipe my butt with them. Now, and What about that yeah. Red X variant cover? That Red X variant cover. 
awful. That's what people say about them, man. They're all awful and not worth your time. And it, it literally, like, I remember looking at it when I went to put them away after Future State was all said and done. I remember looking at them and feeling physically ill. Like, it, it hurt. It literally hurt my stomach. I was nauseated looking at that stack of books and the amount of money I spent. And it was terrible. So, no, I'm not going. I'm not going in on on this at all. Not going in with night tears. I didn't go in with Lazarus Rain. I will not. You're not going to fool me again, DC. Yeah, I I am. I am. I I caved and I ordered all the midnight variant covers because they all look kind of cool. So I violated all my bitching and whining against variant covers. I I just ordered the midnight variants for night tears. At the very least, they'll look good on my shelf. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I read night terrors and I absolutely love it. But I'm not a horror guy. I, it bugs me that it's interrupting the regular titles, and I'm just gonna leave it at that. Speaking I, of I, horror, uh, yeah, sorry, of horror. Wait, wait, uh, actually, it's not the next one. I, I apologize. We we actually have to review uh, PKJ as a backup. Uh, we almost forgot to review the John Stewart Green Lantern story. That's right. Um, and I don't really have much to say because it felt like even less amount of forward momentum than we got in the main story. We did get uh, confirmation, I guess, that the, the the younger Lantern in question is named Shepard. Uh, Lantern Shepard, they call him that. Um, John Stewart is some has some leftover godlike abilities from the Jeffrey Thorne run. I it's still not something like I really. I don't know. John Stewart's just not my Green Lantern. So to have him have all these extra abilities and be so godlike, but yet never seems to be able to solve any problems, like it, it, it's not working for me. So yeah, I'm I'm anxiously awaiting PKJ for his series to start because I know it will make sense. If anybody's going to be able to make sense and to add context to what Jeffrey Thorne did, it's Philip Kenny Johnson. So I'm looking forward to that. He's a great world builder. I know he'll make it make sense. But right now for me, it's just, it's like Jeffrey Thorne threw a bunch of stuff at the wall. In my mind, nothing stuck. And it's left John Stewart in this weird place. And somebody needs to come and sort of straighten things out. And that's what yeah. PKJ is going to do, I hope. Uh, I will say the art is on it is really fantastic. The color work as well. So, uh, but again, it we're months and months away from that series. So it's a little, little disheartening. Uh, yeah. And that from that respect. So what are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I love the art by Montos. Fantastic. Uh, Adriana Lucas on uh, Lucas, the colorist. Fantastic. Uh, PKJ's, you know, she it's this is the rise of the Revenant Queen. She's returning. And this is uh, John Stewart sort of coming back from the sort of uh, from the. I got the impression he's he was sort of living in his own little uh, on his. He was living on Earth with his, I don't know, his grandmother. Uh, and I'm not, and then he's called upon because I, I think he still has part of the, maybe the God power that he has from Jeffrey Thorne's run. I, I'm like you, I'm still a little bit confused that Jeffrey Thorne did so much with Jon Stewart, but so much was crammed into it. And I applaud jo Jeffrey Thorne had a lot of very creative ideas, but I think a lot of it felt very forced and shoehorned in, 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 in order to artificially and very quickly prop up John Stewart. I, I, not that I don't think John Stewart is, is worthy of that, of that mantle, but I'm not sure exactly. I'm not even sure what timeline PKJ is working with here. If this is, 
it does say another universe, another time. I find that a little bit confusing. Are are we talking about a John Stewart in another universe and another time? Really? We're not talking about John Stewart in our universe. Why are we starting off with a John Stewart in another universe and another time? That's that's kind of confusing to me. So so this isn't a story a, a John Stewart story of Earth designated zero, the mainstream DC universe. This is another universe in another time. I'm I'm a little bit confused there. Not that that I mean maybe this is somehow going to overlap into our universe, but then is there going to be two John Stewarts, which there already are two John Stewarts. There's one in the dark sector at the end of John's at the end of Jeffrey Thorne's run and then the end, there was one in the main in in the normal universe. There was there was technically two already. So now are there three? I'm I'm actually I'm actually confused and I'm I'm surprised PKJ has done it this way. The art's fantastic. There's a lot of action, but it's not clear to me where this is going right now. But I am interested and there's a lot of action here. And PKJ, he he did that with War World. War World started off kind of slow, but he it built to a pretty exciting climax, in my opinion. I quite enjoyed it. And I think he's playing that same kind of game here with the same approach here with uh with John Stewart Green Lantern. So I'm prepared to give him quite a bit of slack on it because he's shown that he can do that. He's shown that he can weave a tail. And uh, so, you know, fingers crossed. And I really like the cool, the, the visuals that Montos gives John Stewart on that final page is pretty cool. Along with Adriana Lucas's colors. Yeah. I mean, I can't say enough about how fantastic the art is. There's no, there's no question. The art's uh, gorgeous. So speaking of art uh, and horror, Next book is Sandman Universe Nightmare Country, The Glass House, number three. Uh, James Tynan is the writer. Lissandro Esterin on art. Patricio Del Pesh does the color. Simon Volan on letters. Uh, man, the more I read this, like, again, I'm not the biggest horror guy. Nightmare Country, I wasn't sure what to think um, when we first started reading it. But it's James Tynan. He's a writer. I tr- He's really leaned into the horror Um genre over the last few years since he's gotten away from superhero comics. It's clear that's where his, uh, his passion lies right now. And he's doing a fantastic job. Uh, and so I really got pulled into the first nightmare country volume. Um, and it, it ended up being a really good story. When this one started, we weren't even sure how it, it tied into the first story other than same writer um, and, and same artist. But between this this girl that was killed, um, and then the the witch. What's her name again? Uh, Thessaly. Thessaly. Yeah. yeah. Between those two things, it's uh, it's been it's been wonderful. And to find out that this, for lack of a better term, this this girl, this she's kind of like it's a club. It's not really a stripper, but you know this club where people can go and and you know live out their most depraved fantasies to find out that that was this girl, the girl that got killed um, to find out that that was her roommate. Um, again, it pulls it all together. It pulls it in and it, it ends up being just so interesting what's going on. So it's another one of these books where I think at the end you go back and you reread it and you see the seeds that were planted early on and it just, it makes for a wonderful story. And then again, you add in characters that, Longtime readers of Sandman are going to be more familiar with, like Corinthian. You know, I'm not. I haven't read all that stuff. Um, there's something for you know returning readers as well. So, um, you know, between the connection with Flynn and her her roommate, 
And this Max guy having, you know, fall, fallen in love with that roommate. It, there's so much, there's so much depth here. And the art by Esther, and it, it, it feels like they're getting even more sort of familiar with the tone of the story because I felt like the art here, it was a subtle shift from previous issues. It felt a little more dialed in to like the tone of the story and what um, Tynan is trying to, to get across here. Um, so it's not that the art has been bad by any stretch, but to me, this art was the best art of the series so far. So uh, again, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's interesting it's kind of the philosophical questions that are being raised and um, you know, just hopefully these people that are outright deprived and e uh, depraved and evil are going to get their comeuppance in the end. Um, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, the Lucian character that shows up that kind of has a back and forth with uh, the Corinthian as well. Again, I think that's, I got the impression that that's a character that longtime Sandman readers are going to be familiar with. So probably, you know, from their perspective, they're getting a little, little more context out of that exchange between uh, between the Corinthian and, and Lucian than I did. But uh, that being said, I still found that exchange to be uh, interesting. And I'm, I'm finding myself really interested in the Corinthian as a character. Um, you know, they, they've clearly done horrible things in their past. Um, and maybe they're a villain. Maybe they're an antagonist would be a better term because it seems like they, they live in that gray area. And those are where the most interesting characters for me live because it's all about personal motivation and, and, you know, appealing to their better nature, but maybe this guy doesn't have a better nature. I don't know. Uh, one thing I do know is my wife absolutely is terrified by any images of him because the, 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 the teeth, <laughs> his eyes, that yeah. just yeah, that freaks her out hundred percent. Like I, I can see a cool image and be like, I want to show it to her and she'll, she'll like close her eyes. She'll be like, no, I can't do it. Can't look at it. it she's very susceptible to nightmares from, any sort of horror type things. So uh, anyway, what'd you think of the latest issue here of uh, nightmare country? Uh, well, I, I like the way that things are, are, are all tying in. I, th there's no question that, uh, I don't know if it was absolutely clear to me. I didn't know that. I mean, really there's, there's a connection really between the dead boys we've been reading nightmare country. Uh, and then of course the night nightmare country, the glass house, and they're all sort of connected here. And, and yet, you know, I I will say that this Nightmare Country, uh, The Glass House, is – if you're reading this, just this volume and not the first volume, you, you might be a little bit lost. There might be some confusion. But for those that are – that have – like me, I mean, you and I review it anyway, but I would have been – I've been buying this series anyway just because on the strength of James Tynion because he's – I mean, he's more than earned my faith with everything he's written, quite frankly. And um, – uh, I like the fact that this new character, this Max character, is a sort of an employee of this corporation, and this leader of this corporation is this uh, this Teague character, and this one particular character is is, is prophesizing the end of the world, uh, presumably connected to I'm assuming some Armageddon or the devil, and meanwhile. The uh, Corinthian is uh, senses something is up, and uh, he's. Corinthian soul was was sort of burdened by the Sandman. Uh, by Corinthian can't kill anybody or take any aggressive action against any force without the consent of of this woman that was uh, who's now in the form of a cat. And and meanwhile, this woman's roommate Kells 
is uh, basically now a an undead prostitute that Max is in love with. And as crazy as what I just said sounds, this all works together to weave a narrative of moving toward Armageddon. Corinthian knows he's got to stop it. And this Max Lee character is someone that has a way into this corporation and they're, they're actually writing the story of this woman that was killed and ultimately whose soul was linked to the Corinthian. And there's this corrupt evil corporation and yeah, the Corinthian. Let me, that woman that was killed, her name is, is Flynn. She was the Flynn. main, yeah, the main character in the first book. And I right. forgot to mention one thing I wanted to mention that was brought up here is like, why her? Why is she the linchpin? Why is she so important? Why is everyone, even though she's dead, she's in the form of the cat. Why is everyone still hunting for her? Why was she, why did she have the ability to see monsters? Why were the, the I can't remember their names, but the, the thin and the fat. Yeah, the um, agony monsters. and the ecstasy. Uh, yeah. Why did they, why were they after her? She is so important and we don't know why. Yeah. That's super interesting as well. And, and what's interesting about that is, and thank you, it's, it, it is Madison Flynn who's in the form of the cat. And she's the one with the Corinthian is trying to get to the bottom of things. Because, I mean, Agony and the Ecstasy, they were d- two demons that are aware of what's coming. And it's linked to this evil corporation. At the end of this, Thessaly the witch shows up. And she's actually there. And she indicates that she's actually trapped in this room. And they have to finish writing the script for this movie, ironically enough, telling the story of Madison Flynn for a TV movie. This corporation tell is almost like a TV studio or like Fox News or something. I don't know. Or, or Fox Broadcasting. Yeah, but do, you it's, remember, do you remember where – was it a Thessaly – I know there's a Thessaly one-shot coming. But if you remember – so yeah. she's in this room and she's disguised as the guy that got hired to be the screenwriter – because yeah. he did a bunch of uh, research and it was posting on social media about Madison Flynn and everything that was going on with her roommate and the dorm burning down and all every all the madness that was mm. around it. And I remember there was a one shot somewhere that talked about it and he and Thessaly invites him to her house and then does like a ritual sacrifice and kills him to take his spot so she can get That's him. right. So that, yeah. But I don't remember <laughs> where that was, but I do remember that, she, yeah, yeah, she killed – invited the guy and the guy was like, you know, very socially awkward and no social skills or whatever. And he was yes. all excited that, you know, Thessaly hears this hot chick and yeah. he, he, something's going to go down and then, yeah, something goes down you get killed. And we yeah. find this next, you know, this comes after that for Thessaly. She's taken yeah. on his, identity. she might even be wearing, <laughs> his skin she feels the mask off. She's got some stuff on her face. Yeah, so fa- just fantastic stuff from Tiny. It's so good. Yeah, it's 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 funny you should mention. I can't even remember where where we read that. What one shot that was in? But you know, it's uh, in fact, ironically enough, uh, it, it all goes to show you that all this will probably read much better as a trade because you and I are, you know, we're, we're intrigued by this story. <coughs> Excuse me, but we do have to we do have to weave in all these these stories from different that we can kind of vaguely not adequately recall. So we know that there's a great story there. So it would, I'm, you know, it's definitely going to read better as a trade, but it's a, it's a, it's a testament to the quality of the writing that we, we, we still remember the gist of it and it's keeping us glued to the narrative to know how this is going to resolve. Yeah. Like, again, I'm not a Sandman guy. I've never read any of that stuff. And yet I'm, I'm pulled in by what Tynan is doing. Like, he, he, to me, he's one of the best writers working in comic. He, I mean, he was my writer of the year a couple of years ago um, for the, the Comic Source Awards and, and well-deserved. And yeah, I, I just – and again, part of the reason I'm reading this horror stuff now is because, like Rocky said, because it's Tynan. 
I, I loved his superhero work so much when he kind of away from that and nice house on the lake. You know, he was sharing that around the first issue with other creators and people whose opinions I trust were all raving about it. So of course I'm going to check it out. And then it was, it was amazing. Right. And then on the strength of that, you're like, man, I'm, uh, what is it? Um, something is killing the children, you know, another title that I, I'm not reading it, but I hear only good things. So yeah, the guy, the guy is really at the top of his game right now. So, yeah. uh, all right, let's move on. Next book. We're going to talk about static team up Anansi. I think it's how you pronounce it. Maybe Anansi. Uh, now apologies to the creators because there's no creator page here. Um, but it's written by Evan Narcisse, Charles Stewart, the third, who's a member of the milestone initiative. We covered that, um, their anthology last, last week. Charles Stewart is the penciler. Uh, Jose Marzan Jr. does the inks. Luis Guerrero on colors. I can get all that from the, the front cover that has credits, but there's no letter accredited, so I'm sorry. I can't I can't give credit to the letter. Um, but whoever it is did a, did a great job. Um, I'll, I'll start off by talking about the art by Charles Stewart III. Uh, you know, Milestone Initiative is for – for creators um, of, of color and kind of getting their feet wet, learning the ropes. Some of the people that are involved in the initiative have more experience than others. I don't know how much experience Charles Stewart III has, but this guy needs to be on a monthly book. Not because I wish the grind of a monthly deadline on him, but just because I want to see his art on a regular basis because his art's fantastic. Very polished, um, very dynamic page layouts. The colors by Luis Guerrero work very, very well with what he does. Um, there's a lot of uh, the character An- Anansi, An- Anansi. Uh, he's actually a character from, that showed up in the Static Shock cartoon uh, at one point. This is his DC debut, so speculator alert, um, you know, as far as comics go. And this character, it, it, it goes back to the uh, Akan, which is a cultural people, the Ashanti people, a culture and a, and sort of a tribe of people from Ghana in Africa. And this has to do with their myths, Anansi being the spider sort of mischievous. Um, I don't want to say God, but, you know, kind of in that Loki sort of um, mold, if you will, uh, from what I re- uh, read the research I did. So he's teaming up here with static shock. And I, I liked, I really liked the visuals that Charles Stewart, the third gave us when, uh, Asante's use, uh, uh, Asani's using his powers because a lot of times it, it was spider web looking, even when he's sort of flying through the air, he's like stepping, he's running and he's stepping on little mini spider webs. It, it just looked fantastic. Um, so attention to detail like that from Charles Stewart, I thought was great. The colors were great. Uh, and what I really liked was the, the feel that the story had in terms of it being connected to previous generations. For, you know, a character of color like Static Shock, his ancestors having come from Africa, and it, it felt like it was adding something to Virgil Hawkins as a character, right? Like introducing him and uh, uh, Anansi is, is telling him, hey, you know, I can see your story. That's one of the powers Anansi has is to see story threads, uh, connections going back um, generations and being able to follow people and see where their connections are in present time. So it felt like it was adding something to Virgil as a character in terms of broadening his horizons, so to speak. And I I liked that. I liked that sort of heritage feel, legacy feel that it was giving to uh, 
to static to make him, you know, feel the connection to his ancestors. I thought that was really, really interesting and done very, very well by the writer Evan Narcisse. So I really enjoyed this. Um, it's I wouldn't say it's the most in-depth story in terms of, you know, a villain. That part of, part of it is sort of generic. Um, but in terms of introducing Anansi to the DC universe proper and giving that feel of, of heritage and ancestry and what have you, I thought it, it knocked it out of the park. So overall, I thought it was uh, it was pretty good. Pretty good. What do you think, Rocky? I, I really like the character of Anansi. I, I'm completely unfamiliar with this character. This is the first time I ever read anything about this character. I, I never watched the static cartoon. I absolutely love the concept of Anansi. If I didn't know better, I would think Anansi, Anansi, whatever, if I'm pronouncing it right. I would think that Grant Morrison created the character only because I love the concept of the character of just being sort of, you know, as Anansi himself says, I perceive the ethereal web, ethereal web of stories that surround every living thing and weave perception and reality together. That sounds so cool. <laughs> it really does. What exactly does that mean? I don't know. How does that play out? Uh, the, you know, you mentioned the web, you, you mentioned the art of Charles Stewart III, the way that he could, he would draw the webbing and, and the web, each, each layer of the web, you could see different stories or different panels, you know, it told within the, I guess, the web of one's life, because every life is a biography, every life is a story. And it, it's really a, a perfect interplay with, static with Virgil Hawkins because he really is a character that's becoming someone that's more well, you know, he's being developed in the Milestone universe and this Anansi character really building on Virgil Hawkins and telling him that, you know, in another universe, in in another story, you you could have been a god. And, and of course, superheroes in the DC universe are often more mythological than in other uni- comic book universes like Marvel, where they're more, you know, the, the street level. Is DC heroes are more, and milestone heroes are more, perhaps more mythological. And uh, it's very well done here. I'm very curious, I, 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 in terms of where this Anansi character might go moving forward, because I, I sort of like the, the, the thematic, the, the, the metaphorical idea of Anansi in terms of what power set he might have, what, the way that he can perceive things and maybe help resolve various mysteries because he can maybe see alternative versions of various stories in terms of how things are playing out. The way that he helps uh, Static uh, resolve the, the, the central plot in this issue, I think it works very well. Absolutely fantastic art. And, um, you know, I got to say that we, we've reviewed a lot of Milestone and one of the uh, one of the things that Milestone's been putting out, they've been putting out a lot of compilations lately that are nine ninety five. but there's a lot of comic book material in there, a lot of pages. And for comic books are expensive, but if you want to get a good handle and you just want to limit yourself to a couple comic book universes and enjoy the characters, the Milestone universe would not be a bad choice by any stretch of the imagination. I think DC's done a reasonably good job here, and there's a lot of fun to be had in the Milestone universe. And I think, unfortunately, it probably hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. And this is a character that is not reviewed enough by comic book reviewers like yourself. So I know that other comic book uh, YouTubers out there, I watch other YouTube channels in the review. I would like to see more people uh, give Static uh, a chance in the Milestone comic books a chance in, in their reviews because it's it really is a, a, a universe uh, worthy of uh, further attention. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I don't know why people would I don't know if arbitrary or maybe it's just not a big enough footprint, but people are buying these milestone books and rightfully so because they're high quality stories. Uh, all right. 
I'm curious if this might be the book that you said is trending downward. I, I guessed right with the uh, Wildstorm being the one you're dropping it, but you kind of already were not on board with this title. So we'll see if I'm right. But anyway, <laughs> Superman Lost Book Four. Uh, Christopher Priest is credited with plot and script. Carlo Peculion is credited with plot and art. Jason Paz handles the inks. Jerome, uh, Jeremy, sorry, Cox on colors. Willie Schubert on letters. Uh, this was not my favorite issue of the, the series so far. It felt a little bit like a step backwards. That being said, the emotionality is still coming through on this story. Um, and I, it's sort of strange. This is a, a interesting book to talk about. We know that Superman was trying to stop uh, the entire Earth from being sucked into a black hole. An alien ship crashed into the ocean on Earth. It was powered by Singularity, uh, had some sort of Singularity engine, so basically a black hole engine. Um, and in trying to s- compress the Singularity and, and prevent this disaster and Earth being sucked into a black hole, Superman himself was thrown far, 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 far away. So forget about the whole Philip Kennedy Johnson dialing up his powers where space and time basically had no meaning for him, which is the power level I love to have my Superman at. Um, that's not the case here. And he doesn't know how to get home and he's, he's out there. And in the first issue, he's already home. He comes home just a few minutes after he left in terms of Lois's perspective. But from Superman's perspective, he's been gone for decades. So it kind of jumped around at first and, and I wondered, okay, is this going to be the story of, of Christopher Priest who, whose stories can be, really broad in scope and so big that sometimes he has to take shortcuts and we as readers feel a little lost at times. Is this going to be him jumping around and sort of addressing all sorts of different disasters in the galaxy as he makes his way home? Well, maybe not. Maybe that's sort of what I thought, but now we've gone backwards because even last issue, when he ran into the space dolphins that the Lobo series back in the nineties made so famous, it felt like that was maybe what was going to happen. Instead, we've gone backwards. He's been gone. He's Superman himself has gone back to the planet. He, he refers to as Kansas. Um, and he's, he's basically built himself a replica of the Kent farm in the part of the planet that is contaminated by oxygen because the people that live there, they breathe carbon dioxide. So it's an interesting dichotomy and it's an interesting um, juxtaposition with Superman meeting up with the people that the alien race that rescued him in the first place when he was out there first thrown all the way across the galaxy or universe or whatever. Um, and they, they are there trying to make sense of, of what's going on with the world. They believe that they've, they're, they're basically scavengers. They go around the universe collecting scrap and reusing it. And there are people, they don't want to acknowledge the fact that their society is dying. The rest of the people on the planet now live underground because of the issues with the environment, these people are, they don't want to give in. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that their climate is changing and the atmosphere has become toxic. Their way of life is going to end relatively soon within a few decades. And so the other people and Superman believes that the people underground sold out the, the people that are remaining on the planet. That's not the case. There's like the people underground are like, we're letting them do whatever they want to do. They can live their lives we're not going to force them to come and be safe underground with us. But as a consequence of that, these scavengers are going to come in and they're going to harvest whatever they can because these people are dead in 20 years anyway. And Superman, this is a complex 
sociological problem. But for Superman, it's simple, right? Like he sees life. He's going to protect life. Even though these aliens are like, hey, we'll take you back home. We'll drive you around the parking lot is how they put it. We'll drive you around the parking lot and drop you off at Earth. Um, Superman doesn't care about that. He wants to to save these people. So maybe it's a smaller story than I thought. Um, Doesn't explain why it took him so long to get home. In the end, maybe he's just that that far, uh, that far away. And if he has to get back home under his own power, it could take it could take that long. So interesting story from Christopher Priest. Uh, to, to Rocky's point, I know it always bugs him when we're four issues in. You don't know where a story is going. And I, I, every time I think I know where the story is going, Priest takes a turn and we go somewhere else, which is not really that uncommon for a Christopher Priest title, if I'm being honest. But I'm enjoying the ride, and what I. What I absolutely love too is the Pagulian art. The Pagulian, this, this to me, like previously, Carlo Pagulian, my favorite art of his, favorite thing he ever worked on, was also with Christopher Priest. His Deathstroke uh, run was gorgeous. This, this is a level up from that. Seeing Superman in the white, seeing the the awesome splash pages, seeing these alien landscapes, the colors by Jeremy Cox, who often works with Pagulian, are fantastic. Like even if I wasn't enjoying the story. I'd buy this book just for the art because the art is that good. It's so fantastic. Um, anyway, am I right? Is this the one that you're like, ah, it's trending down? Is this the one you're well, thinking of? Uh, actually, n- n- no, no, I'm actually, it's not, well, it's it's remain level to me. It's not trending down. The, what right. saved this for me is, is what I, is it's going, it appears to be going in a direction and it might not continue to go in this direction, but it's going in a direction where I've said this before. I'm a sucker for a good metaphor. Tell me a story. Make me think. Challenge the way I'm thinking a bit. And I love the fact, and you touched upon it. Superman is delving right into, uh, you know, everyone always thinks that Superman, you know, he's apolitical. It's not about politics with Superman. Bullshit. Superman is right into politics here, but he's just he jumps to the heart of the matter. This is Superman. He's on a planet where half the planet is is has their head in the sand. And for whatever reasons, because they're religious, because of their way of life, they're ignoring climate change because of their own way of life. And there's another more elitist part of society on this planet that he calls Kansas that uh, ignores the other half. And they're going to save themselves. Uh, the the contractatios, the, this other, this alien race that pops by that Superman's th- dealt with before, they tell him, look, this planet's going to be dead in 20 years. You know, this planet's going to explode and we can't save the people on this planet. They're idiots. They got their head buried in the sand. You know, they they won't even listen to reason. And and even if we told them what's going to happen to their planet, they still wouldn't do anything because they're that stupid. I mean, this is the attitude of these contract issues. Now, let's be blunt. Let me let me be very blunt here. This is how cruel we can be in this divisive political world that we live in. Well, let's take the United States, for example. We got left versus right. The left can, you know, doesn't like the right. The right doesn't like the left. They each accuse each other of having their head in the sand, of being retards, of being idiots, of being hate mongers, of, of, of ignoring reality, of being, you know, ignoring science back and forth. Super, you know, Superman does not believe in the prime directive. You know, Superman would disagree with Picard. Super, if you tell Superman, well, no, no, no. I mean, if you were to apply the Star Trek Prime Directive to this planet, you'd say, well, no, I guess the, the citizens on this planet, they can all die because their planet's exploding and they reserve the right to choose to stay and die on their planet. And if they're, they're, they're dying because culturally, that's what they believe. Superman, nah, uh uh No, no, no. I save lives. That's what I do. 
I save lives. That's what I do. I don't accept. I don't just let people die. And so this is this is a little bit. This is controversial if you draw to its natural extension. This is Superman defying what you could view as a prime directive, because this one individual, this elite person on the planet that Superman's talking to, he's, he has a point when he says to Superman, "Look." We've tried to reason with these people. We've tried to talk with them. They don't want to talk with us. So fine, screw it. We're hiding underground. At least we're going to save ourselves. We can't save them. If people aren't going to, aren't going to, if I can't rational reason with people, we give up on them. Enough is enough. Now, a lot of people have that attitude. We certainly know a lot of people that have that attitude in the world we live in. And how does Superman deal with that? Well, Superman refuses well, to Superman. Maybe Superman is naive. Maybe He's a little bit more black and white, but Superman finds a way. He's not like the, you can co- contrast Superman's attitude with, with the, what the, uh, what the, uh, group is called. I love their names here. They're called the contractatios. These, uh, these creatures that are basically tell them, uh, that tell Superman that, uh, uh, you know, that sooner or later this planet's going to explode. Uh, we can't help these people. Uh, we've, uh, you know, uh, we, we would need a herd of cattle just to drag them out of the reality denial. <laughs> That's what these contract ratios view these people on this planet is that we could spell out their fate and they still wouldn't do anything. That's how stupid these people are. That's how they view that they're stupid people. We're not going to save them. They don't listen. We're not going to try. Well, Superman is the opposite of that. Now, if you can't see parallels to our world and what Miss, what Christopher Priest is trying to draw here, then I don't know what to tell you. And so that might be a reason why some people might be turned off by this story. But it's what actually drew, drew me to it because I like what Christopher Priest is doing here. He's not saying this is our world. He's just saying this is this world and can you see any similarities? And by the way, this is how Superman's going to handle it. And at the end of this issue... It looks like he might get some help from a Green Lantern, uh, a very attractive looking Green Lantern from that particular sector of space. And it's interesting. I don't know who that Green Lantern is. I thought I thought maybe it was uh, 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 I, I can't remember her name, but in any event, I, I believe it's a new Green Lantern. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't know who that would be, but it's 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 interesting. And I'm really curious to see where this is going. And I, it's Christopher Priest is making a statement here and he's putting Superman in a very political situation. And I'm going to be interested to see how Superman resolves the issue. Yeah. The Green Lantern, I'm glad you brought her up. Well, Jessica Cruz, that's what it reminded me of Jessica Cruz, the Green Lantern. It's just red skin, which made me think of Sornick. Right. um, Astro's daughter, but clearly not her either. Katma too, another Corrigian. Right. Um, same races. Uh, Sinestro has been dead for years, so I don't know. Uh, the only thing, I mean, you're right in saying it's meta and not putting any words in Christopher Priest's mouth, but the planet is called Kansas. The <laughs> Midwest and the United States does tend to be pretty. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. These people are not real smart. Um, but you're right. I mean, Superman, he's trying to save them from themselves. That's a noble effort. Uh, he's more noble than I would be. I, I, I kind of, I mean, as much as I love Superman, it's like these these people won't face reality. What can you do, right? It's a, it's a tough it's a tough question. I wish I knew the answer to that. I could maybe solve the political unrest of the United States if I knew how to make people acknowledge what is reality. But yeah. I, I can't do that. So uh, anyway, 
Moving on to Lawler versus Wildstorm book two. Uh, you want to talk about a confusing narrative or oblique writing. It's written by Spencer Ackerman, who's a, a, a journal, a political journalist. I think he's written some novels. I'm not 100% sure, but definitely has covered sort of the intelligence beat as a journalist for years. Uh, his co-writer is Evan Narcisse, who we just talked about on the static book. Jesus Moreno handles the art uh, with a help from Vicente Fuentes on inks for pages 9 through 26. Michael Atea on the colors, Dave Sharp on the letters. Um, give us your thoughts on this, Rocky. What do you think? Well, I want to say that Spencer Ackerman and Ivan Narcisse as writers, they are very much weaving a, a tale of espionage here. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of talking heads. There's a lot of talking that's going on. And I think that probably the, 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 the biggest criticism that one can have here is despite what I think is a really great story, there's a lot of thought that's gone into the plot here. And I think the plot's pretty cool. It's just being told to us more than it's being shown to us. There's not that much action here that, that I would normally associate with this kind of story. We've, we've, over the years, over the decades, we've gotten a lot of Suicide Squad stories where we got some, a lot of cool action interspersed with a lot of, of the, of the espionage. This is far more of, uh, of the, of the dialogue and the machinations and the conversations between the various characters as opposed to actual action. Uh, there is, uh, it's interesting that, uh, there's a character, Yamiko, Yamiko Nakamura, who is, uh, at least in the mainstream DC universe, Jane Nakamura's mother. Uh, it, this is, this starts off with Amanda Waller, who is, uh, one of the heads of Checkmate, working alongside, working alongside Adeline Kane, who is the wife of Deathstroke. She's, she's made a deal with, uh, this, uh, Yamiko, Yamiko Nakamura, who is soon to be the leader of Gamora. And is selling her some some high tech. So, uh, just to just to summarize, this is there's a lot that's said here. I can just I can summarize it like this: Jackson King knows that Amanda Waller and Adeline Kane are betraying Checkmate and are betraying the United States of America. They're committing treason. And how are they doing that? They're orchestrating the sale of metahuman technology, and they're experimenting on metahumans around the world. And they're doing it for gain, for their own financial gain, and for and Amanda Waller, in typical Amanda Waller fashion, you want to talk about a hypocritical bitch. Amanda Waller is a complete bitch. This issue, she actually believes the horseshit that's coming out of her mouth in this issue. Uh, and she and Jackson King won't have any of it. And Jackson King rightly has her set up. He's got her dead to rights as well as Adeline Kane. And he sets up Adeline Kane and he he basically has a plan to make uh, to basically blame as much of, he, of it of the plan as much as he can on Amanda Waller. And she deserves it because she has been Amanda Waller denies it. She has plausible deniability. She but the fact is she's harmed children. She's hurt children. She denies it. She claims that she's blame she's pointing fingers at Adeline Kane the wife of Deathstroke Adeline Kane ex is the one who experimented on her own husband Slade Wilson to turn him into uh, Deathstroke and Amanda Waller justifies everything she does because this is the new Cold War this is a, a, a series that takes place in the 1980s at where the Soviet Union is about to fall and America is still the superpower and they want to control the, the the new Cold War and the new Cold War will involve trading weapons and those weapons are metahumans and they and the, and the weapons that they sell, Amanda Waller spells it out here. Her plan, 
and it's really her plan. And she basically admits that she's at the forefront of all of it and then pulls back and then blame points fingers at others. Her plan is to create debt, get other countries indebted to them, get this uh, Nakamura character, one of the leaders of Gamora, get get them indebted to the U.S. for this metahuman technology and then manipulate countries moving forward into the future by their debt, saying, because if you get them indebted to you financially because of you, you're doing all this metahuman weapons trading. That's how you manipulate the world. That's how, you, how America stays in control. And of course, Amanda Waller in her own way justifies it. Of course, metahumans are a threat. So Amanda Waller's, she's a control freak and she's a complete bitch, this issue. And ultimately, Amanda Waller does have a backup plan. And while Jackson King in this issue arranges for her ultimate uh, arrest, Amanda Waller happens to have uh, happens to have footage that convinces other members of other members of the Wildstorm that Jackson King at one time betrayed betrayed them and ended up killing another character called Michael Cray who is dead shot uh, uh, death death shot or whatever the hell his name is but in any event uh, at the end of the day Jackson King is rescued by Stormwatch and so I think this is headed toward Jackson King leading Stormwatch against Amanda Waller and uh, Wildstorm and I think that's, that's where this is headed it's again the I, I love the plotting. Uh, it's going to end. I think the idea is that Jackson King wants to get Lois Lane. Lois Lane was introduced in the first issue and to to basically orchestrate the taking down of Amanda Waller. Now, you and I both, we, we joke. I know how much you hate Amanda Waller. She's an overused character in the DC universe. But an overused character is also at times a sign of a very interesting character. And there's a reason why she's well used. She can be a, she's a character we love to hate and we love to see her get defeated. Will Amanda Waller ultimately get defeated in this, in this uh, black label story? I don't know. I have my doubts. I don't think anyone's ever really defeated Amanda Waller, but who knows? Jackson King might be on the way to do precisely that. The only one who knows at this point are the writers, uh, Specker Ackerman and uh, uh, Yvonne Narcisse. But uh, Jesus Marino uh, on the art did a really good job. I just wish he was, I wish the writers gave him more action sequences to illustrate because this was a story that was more told to us than shown. What do you think? Yeah, it's been that way all along. It's sort of what I don't like about it. Like what's so interesting about it, right, is you talk about these comic book stories and how fantastical they are. But Spencer Ackerman having sort of lived in that world, covered that world of, of espionage and intelligence uh, and foreign relations all around the globe for, for a long, long time. A lot of times truth is stranger than fiction, right? So there is a, a sense of accuracy, if you will, to this in terms of betrayal. You think, oh, that couldn't really happen. It's probably based on things that actually did happen. And yeah, maybe it's it's uh, metahumans rather than bullets or grenades or explosives, but this type of, this type of trading, this, this type of arms dealing is a hundred percent the world that he has covered, like I said, for a long, long time. So there is a, a real sense of authenticity here. Um, and so I like that. What I don't like about it is ultimately with all the betrayals and you can't trust anybody and whatever it's, it's really in a lot of ways, sort of, uh, if I'm being honest, um, the fact that you can't trust anybody and you, you never know who's, you never know who's telling the truth. You never know who's not. And what does that say about us as, 
as a race, as a nation, as a society. And, and that that's all just really, really depressing. So this is not any sort of positive story. And I, it's one of those stories where I think there are no good guys, right? There's just degrees of how much, how much do you suck, right? Amanda <laughs> Waller sucks more than anybody, but Jackson's, you know, no angel either. He's not a likable character. He's not somebody you root for. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I, nobody's relatable. No, I, I don't have any root for. It's sort of like watching a train wreck, right? Like you're just, you're just watching <laughs> to see what's going to happen. Not because you're, you know, you're hoping for any particular outcome. You're just hoping that, I don't know, that they all get blown up. I, I don't know, you know, some sort of Mexican <laughs> face-off at the end. And Amanda Waller pulls a pin on a grenade, bluffing, thinking that, oh, you know, they won't, they won't shoot me if I'm holding this explosive. And they do. And they shoot her and whatever. You are right about Amanda Waller. She's a character that we're, we're beginning to love to hate. I've disliked her for a really long time. It's almost getting to the point where I don't hate her anymore, though. It's almost getting to the point where I just don't care. And that that's where you've crossed the line, DC. If you like a character, somebody like Harley Quinn, she becomes super popular. You can sell books, right? You can sell books if people love Harley Quinn and it's a Harley Quinn book. If people can't stand Amanda Waller and they want to see her get her comeuppance, they want to see justice served and Amanda Waller be defeated, to a lesser degree, to a lesser degree, you can sell books based on that. But if you use somebody so much and they're just completely irredeemable and a total scumbag and you keep bringing them back time and time again and shove them down people's throats, guess what? You just stop caring. And that's almost to the point I am with Amanda Waller where I'm just not going to read stories she's in anymore. She, she is, she shows up more than the Joker now. Yeah. It's, it's too much. We won't be able to review any DC comics if we have to, if we avoid them all with Amanda Waller in it. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Like, not come up with another character like it's and and she has become so unlikable like i i just i don't even want to read anything she's in anymore it's really getting to that point so not that dc's going to listen to me but you would hope that uh and maybe it's not you know we point the finger at dc maybe it's not them maybe it's the writers that just i, I don't know you know editorial has to take some ownership though and say hey Here's a pitch. You want to use Amanda Waller? Don't. There's too much Amanda. <laughs> Just don't. Uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, we have a, a reprint book out this week. It's called DC Pride Through the Years, number one. It reprints Flash, number 53, which was groundbreaking at the time because it was early to mid-90s. That was still when the comics code was around. You weren't really supposed to ha uh, you know, talk about homosexuality in comics. William Meisner Lobes was the writer. Greg LaRoque on pencils, Jose Marzon Jr. We talked about him earlier on the um, milestone book. He was inking for DC back then as well. Glenn Whitmore on colors and this flash 53. This is where uh, the Pied Piper comes out to, uh, to Wally West. He doesn't exactly handle it the, the best. Yeah. So the next uh, reprint is detective comics, number eight fifty four, LG part one. This is uh, in detective when Kate Kane, Batwoman took over as the star of the, book. Greg Ruck is the writer. Amazing, amazing art by J.H. Williams III. To me, this is the really the book that put Williams on the map. You know, he had done previous things um, with Alan Moore, America's Best Comics and this and that, but this was a mainstream book 
It really got him a lot of attention. Dave Stewart on colors. Todd Klein is the letterer. And then from the recent Supergirl uh, Rebirth series from Steve Orlando, it's Orlando and Vita Ayala as writers. Jamal Campbell is the artist. The art is so spectacular in this issue. Carlos M. Mangles, the letterer. Um, and this has to do with a character that befriended Supergirl that was um, struggling in high school with being non-binary. And it really showcased one thing that Steve Orlando really believed about the character. I remember talking to Steve at WonderCon when uh, DC Rebirth was first announced and he was announced as being on the book. And he was saying that Supergirl's true power was her compassion and her empathy. And this story really uh, kind of showcases that. And then there is a new story uh, that's not a reprint. Alan Scott, the Green Lantern, past prologue from writer Tim Sheridan. Cian Tormey is the artist. Matt Herms on colors. Louis Gattoni on letters. And it's going back. And I won't say that it's rewriting Alan Scott, Green Lantern history. Because it's from before he was even Green Lantern. Um but it's talking about his time in the Army Corps of Engineers, and apparently he had a same-sex relationship way back then, and it's diving into some of that. And that will eventually lead into the Alan Scott Green Lantern series that's coming uh, coming later this year uh, in October. So um, I don't have anything else to add about these stories. Um, a lot of them I read when they came out. Um, I think I'd read all three of the, the the story, the reprints previously, uh, but it was good. It was good, especially that Supergirl story to be reminded how great it was. The Alan Scott story. I'm, I'm curious what this Green Lantern series is going to be like in October, but what we got here wasn't particularly interesting to me, not because it's hints of this uh, or not even hints. It's out and out giving us a story of the same sex relationship that Alan Scott had to keep a secret. You can imagine, you know, it's in the early forties, uh, and he's in the military. There's no way he can, you know, be sort of out and be his true self. He would get might even have been illegal at that time. I'm not sure, but he definitely would get kicked out of the military. Um, that's not the reason I didn't find it interesting. The reason I didn't find it interesting is not much happened. It, it focuses all on their relationship. There's no superhero action. There's not really any action at all. Um, so it comes across as a little schmaltzy and, and soap opera. And that's I mean, Alan's I love Alan Scott Green Lantern. I want to see Alan Scott be Green Lantern. Um, this relationship stuff for him, it's less interesting to me. So uh, yeah. anyway, anything to add about this uh, issue, Rock? Just that I, I do find it uh, interesting, a little bit uh, odd that uh, the, uh, I, I don't know, I guess DC just wanted to remind people that they've told stories with LGBTQ characters over the last 20 years. I, I didn't, I do people not know that. I just thought this was a really odd, choice to i mean the stories are fine they you know i I think i even own all of them to be honest uh but i i I really think that if you if this was sort of a way to prop up the price point to try to sell a green lantern story as a prelude to the green lantern uh series i just thought it was uh really an, an an odd choice i don't think that people necessarily i you know i i don't think you're you're necessarily going to get much out of the, the, the two other stories, unless you, you know, again, unless you're, well, frankly, even if you're, you're gay or a member of the LGBT community, there, there's plenty of DC pride. It's just, we've gotten an influx of those lately with all similar messaging and they're all well and good, I guess. Just choose your hero. Uh, what I find more interesting is I'm interested now in Scott Green Lantern. I'm definitely not interested if 
they just want to tell a love story about Alan Scott and make that. I'm 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 infinitely less interested in the story now. I mean, even like, I'm going to be just I'm just going to come right out and say it. You know, if you're if you're telling the history of uh, Alan Scott, drawing him, uh, you know, naked in the shower in World War One, laughing and giggling and holding a gay man in his bed in the story. And this is and this is oh sure this is a love story. So now collect Alan Scott Green Lantern miniseries. Um, and when you're telling people that this is the love story, that doesn't sound like it's going to be a superhero story. It sounds like it's actually going to be exactly what you say it is. You say it's going to be a love story. That's what it is. And I always I always find it really odd. And and they and Steve Orlando did this, for example, in the Midnighter series. There there were scenes that were just graphically graphically I thought was inappropriate, but I guess they wanted to push the envelope because they were dealing with gay characters. This is another one where I just find it a little bit off and uh, you don't necessarily see that. Although I guess you do see that with Harley Quinn and Ivy, but you see that with LGBT characters. And surprisingly enough, uh, you don't see a heck, heck of a lot on, uh, on uh, I, I'm just really surprised by, by, by the, by that particular focus. I, I, I want to see an Alan Scott story. I mean, I want I want Alan Scott his adventure to be grounded in World War Two. I want his adventure to be grounded in this new Red Lantern. I want that you know this Crimson Flame is that related to the Red Lantern? Jeff Johns is hinting at a Red Lantern and that and 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 that mystery of it. I don't want it to be focused on a love story per se, and that's not what's going to pull me into the story. This was a strategic error, and this is misreading the audience. In my view, and I know it's a fine line and I know, you know, hey, it's just my opinion. But I just think if you want to attract both, imagine, imagine what you could attract if you told an epic kick ass adventure tale here instead of instead of wanting to focus on on on, you know, surprise, surprise. Alan Scott had some issues when he was younger because he was a gay man in the in the army. We kind of already known that that's been we it's been repeated. In fact, it's pretty much been universally almost the only thing we've been told about Alan Scott in the last five years. If you're a DC reader, why don't you broaden that a little bit? I mean, is that all he did? I mean, he, he was a superhero, too. Tell me the superhero story. And um, and if you tell me an awesome superhero story and it ha- and he and he's and he happens to be gay. That's cool. That's fine. But to me, they're they're getting it backwards. But, you know, I'll uh, I'll just leave it at that. It, it... Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I, have, I absolutely don't care that they have changed his sexuality. Don't care at all. But and I, I don't care if we get plenty of this Johnny character in the upcoming series as well. But it's got to be balanced. Right. Like, again, like if I if I want to read a love story, I'll go and pick up there's plenty of romance comics out there i don't read them for a reason because that's not where my interests lie um so it's got to be balanced i don't care if the romance is in there but you got to give me the hero stuff too and all we got in this was relationship stuff and then a big red laser coming out of the ocean at the end so yeah i guess i guess we'll see how it all plays out uh plays out in the end uh all right last book of the ones we're talking about in detail, Multiversity Harley Screws Up the DCU, issue number four, Frank Thierry on words, Logan Farbar on pictures, Farron Delgado on letters. Haven't read any of this, continue to not read any of this, so it's all you, Rocky. What'd you think? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, 
Right. Well, the the premise of this story is that Harley has, well, I mean, he should, she does in fact screw up the DC universe. How does she do that? Well, there was a point in time where she, every issue is just how she has screwed up the origins of another member of the Justice League. Uh, she screwed up initially the origins of Superman and Flash and, and, uh, that was in the previous three issues, uh, building up to that and then building up to this issue, she screws up. She, uh, it shows how she screwed up the origins of Wonder Woman. She ends up on Themyscira. And as Wonder Woman, of course, was born of clay during one of her origins, unfortunately, Harley Quinn steps on the sandcastle. That is not, in fact, a sandcastle, but is, in fact, <laughs> the young clay, uh, Diana. And uh, she ends up killing Diana, uh, who will become Wonder Woman, obviously pissing off her mother, uh, Hippolyta. And while I guess... There, there's humor on the surface of that. The, the problem with this series, I find, is uh, is yeah, Frank Thierry, who, who's, I, I think while he's got an interesting premise here, he certainly doesn't have enough to drag this out for six issues because it, it's it's extremely predictable. I mean, it's, it's the same plot tread that uh, Harley Quinn, surprise, surprise, ends up be, conveniently, just somehow very conveniently, ends up being transformed transforming and transporting in multiple parts in the universe happened to arriving exactly at the opportune moment to ruin the origins of all these heroes so it's very forced and contrived to begin with and and frankly i hate to say this but i just don't find it funny it's not funny and it's 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 not goofy enough and it's i, I wish it was and starro wants to control the multiverse and all the starros uh, they, they they don't mind what Harley Quinn is doing and screwing up the multiverse because it was Harley screwing up the multiverse and destroying the Justice League by destroying them when they were at at central points of their origin that le- allowed the Starros to take over the multiverse to begin with. And then, uh, but in any event, this is Harley Quinn's undoing the damage that she caused along with the help of one of her, another multiversal iteration of herself. And, uh, and then ends up... Uh, Aquaman as well. She screws up Aquaman's uh, origin, and uh, you know, uh, just and then it ends with her ending up in Gotham City. Well, she'll next issue. I'm sure she'll screw up Batman's origin, or she'll be issue five, and then and then the, she'll resolve Batman's origin. I'm sure at the end of next issue, and that will result in issue six with her battling the Sorrows. And and it's all well, you know, it's all well and good, but it's it's nothing. It's um, we just see too much of these types of stories for Harley Quinn. This is past uh, the shelf life for these types of stories. It's hot. It's we're well past the time where what we need for Harley Quinn are stories that uh, that take the character seriously. And if anybody listening, particularly anybody listening who fancies themselves a writer and says, what do you mean take Harley Quinn uh, seriously? If you don't know what I mean by that, I don't want you writing Harley. Because she needs to be taken more seriously and then take her very seriously, take the continuity seriously, and then take a step back and tell a good story. And for some reason, there seems to be this excuse but that writers make when they write Harley, should they write her zany, and they, 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 they focus so hard, trying so hard to be funny, they forget that there's supposed to be a story somewhere to be told. And this is just a prime example of that continued failed attempt and uh, – in any event, it's a, it's a miss for me.
you summed up why I'm not reading this 100%. Yeah. You summed it up perfectly. <laughs> the problem with Harley Quinn, they try so hard to be funny and zany, they forget to tell a story. Uh, and I just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't read this. So anyway, uh, that's it for the single issues. There is one other single issue out this week. If you're a Scooby-Doo fan, uh, we've got the Batman and Scooby-Doo mysteries issue number nine. And then as far as collections go, it's a, it's a banner week for comics that Rocky loves, uh, Batman and the white Knight beyond the white Knight hardcover. That's the, uh, Sean Gordon Murphy verse with uh, the latest ongoing series or mini series that he had 10 issues or whatever it was. It was really, really good. We reviewed it. We liked it. We recommend it. Uh, there is a Superman hardcover, Superman Camelot falls deluxe. Uh, this is Kurt Busick on Superman, Carlos Pacheco, the late great Carlos Pacheco as penciler inks by Jesus Moreno. It collects uh, Superman. Again, this was before the new 52 uh, collects Superman issues six. 54 to 658, 662 to 664, 667, and Superman Annual 13. It's all about Superman against Intergang, uh, and it's it's good classic stuff. Um, also collected this week at those. This is one of those books that I mentioned. Rocky just absolutely loves. Speaking of absolute, absolute Dark Knight's Death Metal hardcover. So <laughs> if it's not for you to read Dark Knight's Death Metal. You can have it in hardcover. You can have it oversized to see that fantastic Capullo art. Unfortunately, the Capullo art is sort of the high point of that story because the story is a bit of a mess. Um, but if you like the Capullo art or if you absolutely love seeing, I don't know, versions of Batman as a bat cave or a, a monster truck, uh, maybe you'll give that a try. Uh, another one of Rocky's more recent favorite series, Dark Crisis Young Justice. <laughs> from Megan Fitzmartin also gets a hardcover. And then one of my and Rocky's favorites, the Teen Titans Academy series, is finding <laughs> volume two, uh, collecting issues six through 15 of that interminable series with Red X shoved down our throat that made absolutely no sense. It gave us the Beast Boy cyborg sharing the same body that has been completely forgotten and never explained how they're back to normal. Um, so that's out this week as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you're so inclined, if you're into, uh, I don't know, self-torture, um, that's out this week as well. So, yeah, definitely not high-quality collections this week um, other than that Batman Beyond and Superman uh, are worth your yeah. time. The other three, eh, yeah. buyer beware. So, so what's, uh, uh, what's your pick of the week this week? You know, I really enjoyed Superman Lost. I thought Green Lantern was really good as well. But at the end of the day, you know, in Spirit World, I'd get, I gave some thought to. But at the end of the day, oh, I forgot. I was going to say at the end of the day and pick make my pick, but then Static was really good too. But you know what? You you may be picking Static. I'm going to go with Batman Incorporated because it was the first book I read, and that's that's the one that got me as soon as I finished reading it, texting you, going, "Holy crap, Batman Incorporated!" Ed Brisson, uh, that moral dilemma, yeah, really, really got me. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the other ones I mentioned are, are worthy as well. Spirit World was really, really good. That uh, Static Shock team up was great as well. So, yeah. uh, what, what's your pick? Well, uh, it, it was a toss up to me. Uh, I nothing really blew me away this week, uh, but I like the I like the 
I like Batman Incorporated for the reasons you gave, but I'm going to go out on a, uh, I'm going to give it just by a stretch. I'm going to give it to Superman Lost ah. only because, no, only because of the questions that it asked. I, let me be very clear. This, this is a series that could end up, you know, really botting them out. It might, it might continue to meander because it still, it still needs to, I want, it needs to have more of a story, but if it continues to force Superman to, to, to get involved and make tough decisions that he wouldn't, he can't, we can't tell Superman's stories with him making tough decisions here on earth. We can't because writers will not be able to get away with it, but Christopher Priest can get away with it. If it's a, if it's on another world and, and, and he can push the envelope and maybe ruffle some feathers here. And I, I like it. He's making me think. And, um, and frankly, I, I got the most out of this here, uh, as opposed to most of the most of the other ones. The other ones were okay, but this one I thought was a little thought provoking in a way that poked fun at us, and I think rightly so. Uh, and when I say fun at us, I mean us as a, as a society, as a world. And so I think it was it was a good issue. Yeah, and the art again has been absolutely fantastic throughout. So, yeah. all right, everybody, that's gonna do it for this episode. Appreciate you joining us and for the support as always. Don't forget, if you're listening to us audio only, head over to YouTube. You can see our smiling faces and the art uh, in these books as we talk about it. Uh, Rocky's channel is comic space boom exclamation point. Once you get there, you know what to do. Subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave some comments. Uh, all that helps us uh, with coverage and accessibility. Conversely, if you've stumbled across us on YouTube, you're curious about the other audio only content from the comic source, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the comic source and subscribe. So uh, appreciate you joining us as always, everybody. And we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.